0: You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our
1: latest episode. We thought it uh, appropriate to conclude our eight-part series on the events subsequent to the return of Christ by entering into the house of prayer for all nations. And see if we can transport ourselves, brothers and sisters and young people, into that day. That's why this record has been written. We've been given graphic detail of the construction, the features and the principles that pertain to this house of prayer. And we're going to see tonight, brothers and sisters, how important it is to understand what has been revealed to us. You know, when you come to look at a subject like this and you look at Ezekiel 43... You see those early verses of that chapter, they represent the community of the saints, the glorified saints entering into the house by the east gate, after which that gate is shut permanently for the next thousand years, because the glory of God will not depart from it again. Which also implies that our Lord Jesus Christ, once he has entered that house, seeing he is the epitome of that glory, that he himself will not depart from that building For a thousand years, he will send forth his saints into all the earth to do the work that has to be done. But he himself, the glory of our God, will remain in that place. He's not leaving it, brothers and sisters. Unlike, of course, monarchs of our time. And so we have here a vision of glory that we need to appreciate for what it's worth. You know, when you read those verses, verse 2 and 3, you're getting a picture of the multitudinous Christ in glory. Verse 2 says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. And his voice was like the noise of many waters, which we know as a biblical symbol for a multitude of people, a vast multitude. And the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city. Now he's talking here about chapter 9, 10 and 11. Because, of course, he had seen that wonderful vision in Ezekiel chapter 1 of the cherubim, which, through their work, brings about the establishment of the kingdom of God. Because at the end of that chapter, you've got a throne with a rainbow above it. So the storms are gone. All the wars are over. The kingdom's been established. But, of course, when he comes to chapter 9 and 10, he sees, of course, the glory beginning to depart. And in chapter 11, it leaves this house and it will not return until Christ brings it back with his brothers and sisters from all ages who have been glorified with him. So that's what this chapter is about. So when you read on into into verse 4, it says, And the glory of Yahweh came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east. Now here is an artist's depiction on the screen of that glory entering into the house. Uh, And so Christ and the saints come through the east gate, and we know from chapter 44 that once they enter, those gates on the outside of the east gate, there are 11 of them, they are shut, and they're shut permanently for the next thousand years. And so when you go on and you read in verse 5, So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of Yahweh filled the house, we need to see Ezekiel as a representative man. He's there, brothers and sisters, to represent you and me. He's like a microcosm of the of the whole multitude of the redeemed in that day. And then we read these words. And I, I don't know about you, but when I read verse 6, I get a tingle up my spine, and what little hair I've got on my head sort of stands up on end. Read verse 6 with me, and see if you can transport yourself to that time when you are entering in as an immortal in through the east gate, and this house is flooded with the glory of God. And you're standing. Nobody else is in in this house at this time. There's no mortals there. It hasn't yet begun. It hasn't yet begun to be used by the mortals. This is not the inauguration of it. This is the entry of the glory. And so, brothers and sisters, we're there with our Lord Jesus Christ in this place. And we read in verse 6, And I heard him, and the him obviously, of course, is Yahweh himself, Speaking unto me out of the house, and the man stood by me. Now just try and picture that, brothers and sisters, you standing there with the multitude of the redeemed, and you hear the voice of Almighty God speaking to you out of that house. What a day that will be. Now that's what we want to enter in tonight. We going to have a look at this place and see what it means to us both now and in the future. You know, see there it refers in verse 6 to the man stood by me. That's a reference back to chapter 40 and verse 3. If you don't have a note in your margin, but you should go back to chapter 40 and verse 3, which we're going to do a little later on. It's a reference to the builder of the house. And the builder of the house, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ, because, of course, the promise to David was, you will have a son who will build my house. And here it is, of course, not a reference to Solomon. Solomon built a temple. But it's not this place. It's Christ who's the builder of this house. So how important is it to understand the form of the house? Well, as we read in chapter 43 of Ezekiel, these words you can see on the screen. This is a very important little section. Thou, son of man, show the house to the house of Israel. So Ezekiel's been given all of these details, these seemingly complex details, and they are complex, in chapters 40 through 46... And he is now commissioned with revealing in detail that form of the house, both in terms of its architectural detail, but even more importantly of the principles and the doctrines that it teaches that they might see their need to get their lives in order. That's what this little section here in verses 10 and 11 is about. That they may be ashamed of their iniquities, it goes on to say, and let them measure the pattern and if they, had, if they be ashamed of all that they have done, show them the form of the house and the fashion thereof and the goings out thereof and the comings in thereof and all the forms thereof. You can't miss this, can you? This, is, this, this emphasis on the need to understand this house both in terms of its structure, but more importantly of the principles of that, that structure and the laws of the house present as a way of life. And that's what it does. It goes into saying, all the ordinances thereof and all the forms thereof and all the laws thereof and write it in their sight. Why? Why do this, Ezekiel? That they may keep the whole form thereof and all the ordinances thereof and do them. Now what do you learn from that, brothers and sisters and young people? I learn from that that if you can enter in to this wonderful vision and... Join Ezekiel as he's walked around this house. If you can do that, it's going to change your life for good. That's what I say. It has the power to change your life for good. And that's why Ezekiel had to do it. Because this place is not just a building. It's a place where principles are powerfully set forth in every ordinance that pertains to it. The temple teaches critical lessons for eternal life. Now, of course, that wonderful book, The Temple of Ezekiel's Prophecy, written by Brother Henry Sully, uh, is, is a perfect way to, to understand, I believe, what these chapters contain. But this is what he said in a, in a couple of places. Page 94, for example, he said, Doctrinal significances are shown to be associated with the, with the construction of the house. He also says... There is, in fact, perfect architectural and doctrinal harmony throughout, which is an argument sufficient in itself to commend the explanation given. And, of course, the principle involved here is that of Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18, with which we began this series of studies some time back. Where there is no vision, the people perish. And the, the word vision there, of course, has to do with creating pictures and images in your mind. And that's what this detail is given for, that we might carefully examine it and build this picture in our mind and walk around the house with Ezekiel, who's walking beside the builder of the house, the man of chapter 40 and verse 3. There's another important injunction in the next chapter, Ezekiel chapter 44 and verse 5. So if it wasn't sufficient to understand that what I just said is important, look at this verse. Ezekiel 44, verse 5. Son of man, mark well, and behold with thine eyes, and hear with thine ears. So here he is, he's he's a representative man, he's there to represent you and me, and he's told to look carefully and to listen carefully. All that I say unto thee concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord, and all the law thereof, and mark well the entering in of the house with every going forth of the century. So there's something very important about these things. That's what we're being told. And Brother Sully says this on page 11 of his book. The non-observance of the injunction by the authors of many absurd drawings probably explains their failure. Not even the most careful students of the subject seem hitherto to have grasped its meaning. Then we often say, don't we, that Brother Thomas was... Uh, raised up by God so to speak and used by God to recover the truth in the latter days well I think Henry Sully might have been in a similar position in relation to the temple of Ezekiel's prophets he was an architect by trade, he was also a Hebrew student and you really do need to understand Hebrew to dig down under the, under the surface of what we have here in these chapters he also said this the uniqueness of his work on the temple Some have done good service in critical and scholastic emendation of the text, and you need to do that. We'll have a bit of an example of that tonight. But no one has produced a drawing which can be said even to pretend to find a reasonable place for all the features mentioned in the prophecy. In every case, some important element is missing. This, then, is the writer's aim. Whether that object is accomplished, events will decide. So far however, as the writer can see, this exposition does find a reasonable place for everything mentioned by Ezekiel. Now I've been astonished of late brothers and sisters as I get around of the growth, the seeming growth of the small temple theories, and there are many of them. The small temple theories are on the rise. In certain places it's almost endemic. Now that really means of course that I don't think these people could possibly have given much time to reading through Brother Sully's work or their own particular study because it is ridiculous. This simply cannot be a small rectangular building, as many would suggest. I want to just talk about that tonight and perhaps put some defence on Brother Sully's work. And the first thing we need to do is to establish the measuring tools that Ezekiel used, or at least he saw the man, the builder of the house, use. Come back to chapter 40 of Ezekiel. This is where it all begins. I want you to notice the language of the early verses of chapter 40. Verse 2. He was in in the visions of Elohim. So let's see what that means. That's actually a repetition of chapter 1, isn't it? Uh, in chapter 1, when we saw the, uh, the cherubim, he was in the visions of mighty ones. So this is about the community of the saints in glory. In the visions of mighty ones, brought he me into the land of Israel and set me, not upon, but near, as it should read, near a very high mountain. Now, what would that be, you think? Well, it's obviously the exalted Mount Zion of that day. Then it says, by which... Now, that phrase is better rendered by Rotherham, thereupon. In other words, there's a building around this very high mountain. Because it goes on to say, uh, thereupon was as the frame of a city on the south. So you've got a frame of a city. Uh, Of course, it's talking about the one mile or 1.6 kilometer square temple that sits around Mount Zion. Now, straight away, of course, you can't have a small temple. Straight away, that's dismissed. I want to show you, as you move on into this chapter, how important it is to know the measurements involved here. Now, in verse 5, we read this. Maybe we should read verse 3, as I pointed that out to you a little earlier. And he brought me thither, and behold, there was a man. Now, the Hebrew word there is ish. Uh, so ish has to do with a notable man, or a, a great man, or a mighty man. It's clearly a reference to Christ. There was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass. So he has a relationship to human beings, because we know that brass is the metal of human beings, but he's a glorified human being. And it goes on to say, he had a line of flax in his hand, and a measuring breed, and he stood in the gate. Now, we want to have a look at this measuring reed because it's very important in the scheme of things. Verse 5 goes on to say this, And behold, there was a wall on the outside of the house, round about, and in the man's hand a measuring reed of six cubits long by the cubit and in hand breadth. So he measured the breadth of the building, one reed. That is the height. And the height, one reed. So you've got, in fact, height and depth of that wall so it's a foundation wall because we're going to see in a minute there's actually a structure built on that wall so what about this measuring reed this is what Brother Sully says about it in the Temple of Ezekiel's Prophecy page 10 evidence at present accessible are signs as the length of the cubit and the hand breadth either 21 inches or 24 inches 21 inches is 53.34 centimetres 24 inches is 60.96 centimeters. A reed is therefore either 10.5 feet or 320 centimeters, or 12 feet, 365.76 centimeters. So you get a bit of a feel for that. You know, 12 feet in in the old language. So I'm about six foot tall, double me, and you've got 12 feet. That's the base foundation wall upon which there is a structure built. Come to chapter 42. Of Ezekiel. Here we're going to see the proportions of this house, the outer wall of the house. Chapter 42, I'm going to pick it up at verse 16, maybe verse 15. Now when he had made an end of measuring the inner house, he brought me forth toward the gate whose prospect is toward the east and measured it round about. In other words, he's measuring the length. He measured the east side with a measuring reed, 500 reeds with the measuring reed round about. So you can see on on the screen this picture here of the uh, 1.6-kilometre square house, and you've got 500 reeds along that eastern side, but that's also going to apply to every other side because when you come down a little further, you notice that because you come down to... um, uh, verse, uh, verse 16, measured the east side. Verse 17, he measured the north side. Verse 18, he measured the south side. He turned about to the west side. So he's measuring every single side of this house. So it's a square building straight away. And it's 500 reeds or 3,000 cubits, seeing that there is six cubits to a reed. Now I'm going to show you how important that is in a minute. So we know that this is a very large structure. Nothing like what you'll see if you look up E.W. Bullinger's work in the Companion Bible with his little, you know, rectangular temple. Nothing like that at all. And Brother Sully's made the point that you have to find a place for every feature of the house. You can't just select what you want. It has to be consistent across the board. And that's what he achieved, I believe, uh, in his work. So here we've got that measuring of the 500 reeds of the sides. So the length of the wall 500 reeds long using the 21 inch cubit that would be 5,250 feet or 9.94 of a a mile or 1,600 metres 1.6 kilometres. Using the 24 inch cubit that is a cubit and a hand breadth you've got 6,000 feet or uh, 1828 metres. So We'll have to wait and see the exact measurement, but it's got to be either one of those two. Each wall has a structure upon it, at least 43 cubits, that is 26 metres high, which you know from chapter 40, verses 6 to 16. And this outside wall is the fascia of halls, uh, or cellae, as they're called, 50 cubits or 30 metres wide. So when you come up the steps into this house, you've, you've got this, this uh, four or so metre wall beside you, and it's four metres or so thick, and you look up and you see this structure above you, and then of course there are arches above your head as well. So you've got this huge structure which goes around the entire building. So how can it be possible for it to be some mini uh, place such as many have presented? Now, What we need to do, when you're considering any subject, is to let the Bible speak for itself. Come to chapter 47 of Ezekiel. If what we've just read in chapter 42 is right, then there's going to be further evidence that it's right. And there is. Ezekiel 47 and verse 2. He's talking here about waters that are issuing out from under the threshold of the house and they run eastward. That's what we read in verse 1. So it's about the, as you can see, along both the north side of the building and the south side of the building, you've got water coming out from under the gates. That water comes down from under the altar, it runs down the south side of the mountain, it goes underground and then comes up here in the south under the gates and in the north. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you'll know that if you go down underground in Jerusalem, there's a lot of water there. Even today, there's a lot of water there. So that's not a difficult uh, thing for uh, Christ to achieve when he builds this house. So this is what we want to focus on, this area up here and the north, because that's what verses 2 onwards are about. Then he brought me out of the way of the gate northwards. So there we are, we're on the north side. And he led me about the way without unto the, it says utter, it means outer, the outer gate by the way that looketh eastward. So if you're coming out of the gate northward and you're looking eastward, you're looking along that wall. So what happens here? Verse 3. And when the man that had the line, that is the measuring reed, in his hand, went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits, and he brought me through the waters, and the waters were to the ankles. Now, of course, the whole point of this exercise is that no one will enter this house unless they're immortal. All mortal people who enter this house will enter from either the north or the south, depending on what they have to do on that particular day. If you're sacrificing, you've got to come through the north. If you're offering other gifts and coming up from the south, and you've already made your sacrifice on a previous occasion, you can come through the south gate. And, of course, the law of the house is that if you come in either gate, You've got to go the opposite way. So if you come in the north, you've got to go out the south. If you come in the south side, you've got to go out the north. So you can't avoid walking around this place. You're going to see everything. So that's another critical principle here. But here we are, we're on the north side. And what we've got is Ezekiel following Christ, the builder of the house, along this north side. And as you just read in that verse... He goes a thousand cubits. Now read on, verse 4. Again he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters, and the waters were to the knees. So the first thousand cubits, the water is ankle deep, because that's water for people who only need to wash their feet. You know what Christ said? If you've been washed, that is, if you've been baptized, you only have to need to wash the dust off your feet or off your walk. So here's mortals coming to worship. They've got to wash their feet. But there are others, like the priests, the Levites, who will be making the sacrifices or taking the sacrifice and making the sacrifice on the north side, they're going to need to wash a bit more. So you got water to the knees. But then you go a bit further on, and what have you got? Verse 4 goes on to say in the second sentence, Again, he measured a a thousand and brought me through the waters, and the waters were to the loins. In other words, this is deep enough to be baptised in. So there's provision made along that north side for every need. Of the mortal worshippers. So why am I here? Well, just watch what happens here on the north. Because folks, what happens here on the north is you've got a measuring. And Ezekiel is following Christ. So there's a thousand cubits and another thousand cubits and then another thousand cubits. How many is that? Well, that's three thousand, isn't it? So what's three thousand? Five hundred reads that's exactly the same as chapter 42 remember so there's your confirmation we know we know that this building is at least that size it's huge 1.6 kilometers when was the last time you walked 1.6 kilometers and you find out how long that will take yeah it's a huge building now that of course is the outer halls of this building what about the inner circular sanctuary? And there is an inner circular sanctuary. And if you're good, if your eyes are good, you can actually see that there's a curvature to that plan. Can you see the curvature? And there's a very interesting aspect to this curvature because the inner doors the inner doors are six cubits wide. Now, six cubits, think about it. What's a cubit? Around about two feet, right? Sixty-odd centimetres. Six of them, about four metres or so wide. Okay, got a bit of a picture. But when you get to the other side, to the outer side of this circular sanctuary, they're seven cubits wide. The door is seven cubits wide. Now, we want to just reflect upon that. It's because, of course, it is a circular building. In Ezekiel 41 and verse 3, we get that information. You come to Ezekiel 41 and verse 3. You have this information about this particular portion of the temple. The circular temple is being measured here. In verse 3, we read Then went he inward, that is, into this building, and measured the post of the door, two cubits. So there's a door post there, two cubits wide, which is pretty big. And the door, six cubits, and the breadth of the door, Seven cubits, so there's two doorways here. One's the inner and one's the outer door of this circular building. Now we know, from the detail that we're given, we know exactly how many cubits there are in the radius of the building. So you can start at the the middle of the building, on the top of Mount Zion, you've got a radius. It's 1120 to the inner doors and another 70 to the outer. And if you're a mathematician, guess what? It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. If there was if if this distance between here and here, the inner door and the outer door, was another twenty cubits, it wouldn't you wouldn't have the measurement of six and seven. So it's perfectly mathematically constructed. As you would expect, you know the designer of this building is God Himself. And he is the perfect mathematician. So there's another proof that this is a very large building. And this inner one is circular in character. So I want to just show you the, the courts of this house. So here's a block plan of the temple. Now we've just been right up against that door that is six cubits wide. And the next step that you take can't be taken by mortals. It can only be taken by immortals because you're going into the most holy, which is why the Levitical priests, the, the ones who prepare the sacrifices, can't proceed beyond that point. This is why the immortal saints, as priests, at some point in their experience, will be there to accept those sacrifices from the Levites because they will then convey those sacrifices to the altar, which is on the top of Mount Zion, which is part of the most holy. So you can see that blue area there. It goes from the inner doors, those six-cubit ones, inwards. That is the most holy of this house. But there, of course, is the outer court that we've just read about recently. And the outer court is from the outer wall to the outer wall of the inner row of buildings. Did you get that? the outer wall of the inner row of salle or buildings in this square section of the house. Then, of course, you've got the inner court. And the inner court is like the holy place of old. And it goes from the outer wall, which is the boundary of the outer court, to the inner gates of the circular sanctuary. So you've got three courts, just like you had of old in the tabernacle, and in Solomon's temple, and, of course, beyond. And this, of course, is why Haggai chapter 2 makes reference to this. The glory of this house, this latter house, will be greater than the glory of all those that preceded it, in many, many ways. So it's, it's important to have a, a concept in your mind of these wonderful things that pertain uh, to this house. But I had the experience once of sitting and listening to a young lady baptized lady talking to some other young people in another country and she was talking about Ezekiel 41 verse 4. So you're probably there, have a look at verse 4. So he measured the length thereof, 20 cubits and the breadth, 20 cubits, before the temple and he said unto me, this is the most holy and she said to this group of young people, well there you are The most holy is only 20 cubits by 20 cubits. Really? You see, it shows an abhorring misunderstanding, not only of the text, but of the proportions of this building that we've just been talking about. It's ridiculous to have a a most holy place of 20 cubits by 20. And when you look at it, it just doesn't mean that at all. When it talks about the length here, that is, of the inside rooms, in that circular structure... You've got inside rooms, and there are three levels to that building. So it's huge. It's called the Chamber of the Singers. It's going to have a vast multitude, an innumerable multitude of people crowding in there from time to time, singing praises to Yahweh, and it's got to be big because they will be a vast multitude. So here you've got this length that is of the inside rooms from rib to rib. That is, there is ribbed arches above in in the ceiling of this building. 20 uh, cubits, 3 by 20, across that entire cella or hall. When it talks about breadth here, it's not talking about breadth that is horizontally. A lineal measurement. It's talking about height. How do we know that? Well, we're told, we're told in the record that the breadth of this floor area is only 16 cubits wide. just not 20. So you've got to see what the text is actually saying. What we're being told here is that when you get to that door, that inner door of this circular sanctuary where there's a six-cubit opening and beyond that only immortals can go, we're being told that you're right up against the Most Holy. This is the Most Holy. So when you go a little bit further into this, this this drawing, by the way, is not to scale. It comes out of the margin of the Bible. So here you've got that same representation. You've got your posts. You've got the door, six cubits. The one on the other side here is seven cubits wide because of the curvature of the building. What you have here is this boundary at the inner door of this circular sanctuary. And beyond that, this way, is the most holy place. And it's huge. Certainly not 20 cubits by 20 cubits. The three chambers across, and of course these are obviously not proportional, the three chambers across are 16, which is your width here, and 20. So this should be three 20s. And the most holy is inward, to the left in that picture. I wanted to mention that, brothers and sisters, because if you enter into these silly theories about small, most holies. You are not only minimising the grandeur of this place, but you are basically cancelling all of the lessons involved. Remember what Ezekiel was told? Mark well all of the features and all the characteristics of this place because they teach spiritual lessons and there are a multitude of them. And if you lose that, well then you've lost the whole point of the exercise. It's basically useless to you. Another proof that the altar and the Most Holy are in the same area. Have a look at chapter 40, verse 47. So he measured the court, and this is the court of the altar, 100 cubits long and 100 cubits broad. So we've got a square altar. 100 cubits, cubit, you know, 60 centimetres, 100 of those, that's, that's a pretty fair distance, isn't it? What is that, 60 metres or whatever? Okay, so it's quite a big altar. Why? Well, because there will be probably half a million mortal worshippers in this place on any given day. The temple can actually seat half a million people for a meal. So you've got a half a million people most of them offering offerings, you've got a lot of animals to consume. And they'll all be consumed at 3pm in the afternoon, not because the the priest will stoke fires, but when fire falls from heaven at 3pm in the afternoon. Why then? Because that was when our Lord Jesus Christ died. And when that fire comes down, brothers and sisters, to consume those sacrifices, God is saying, I accept them because I know that you put that that offering on my altar, as a representative of my son. You saw in that sacrifice that you made that my son is the means whereby you can have redemption. I could prove that to you, by the way, from chapter 45, that every single sacrifice that's made in that day will be seen as representative of the sacrifice of Christ. That's why they're accepted at 3pm in the afternoon. That word before, see what it says here? It says, and the altar that was before the house. That word before is "pani" in the Hebrew. It means the face or in the presence of. So what we have here, of course, is an altar that is in the presence of the entire house. Now that means it can only be in the middle. It can only be in the middle. Now here it is on the top of that very high mountain that we read about. And it's in the presence of the entire house. Now it's also in the most holy. Have a look with me at Ezekiel 43 and verse 12. This is the law of the house. Upon the top of the mountain, notice again, we're on the top of the mountain. The whole limit thereof, round about, that's the language of being in the middle of something, isn't it? Round about, shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. Now that little phrase there, the most holy, the two Hebrew words that are used are Kodesh, Kodeshim. When you've got an I-M on the end of a Hebrew word, it's plural. It means holiness of holinesses. In other words, the most holy. You can't get any more holy than that. So the altar, which is then described from verse 13 down to verse 17 in great detail, the altar is in the most holy. Now that's a difference, isn't it? That's quite a big difference from what existed under the temple and the tabernacle of old. And there are good reasons for that, of course. We won't go into those now. I'm going to take you now, brothers and sisters, in our concluding remarks on this subject, I'm going to take you to Ezekiel chapter 46. But before I do that, I want to show you something important about Ezekiel being a representative man. I want you to come back to chapter 43 again, briefly, because the altar is described, as I said, from verses 13 uh, to 17. But then we read about Ezekiel and his duties of the future. Let's read... Uh, verse 18. And he said unto me, Son of man, thus saith Adonai Yahweh, these are the ordinances of the altar in the day when they shall make it, to offer burnt offerings thereon and to sprinkle blood thereon. And thou shalt give to the priests, the Levites, that be of the seed of Zadok. Now, these are the immortal priests, and many of you will know that the reference there is to chapter 44 and verse 15. Because if you go to chapter 44, verse 15, over the page you will see that that uh, verse starts with the word but. What precedes it are ordinances that pertain to the mortal Levites in the temple. What follows it from verse 17 onwards is also, again, reference to the laws that pertain to the mortal Levitical order of that day. Verses 15 and 16 are different. They're in parenthesis in the Hebrew, and that's why it begins with the word but. It presents a different order of priests. And those priests are called the sons of Zadok, or the sons of righteousness, as Zadok means. And so here we've got that order of priests being referred to in chapter 43 and verse, and verse 19. But I want you to notice one word in that verse. It, in fact, is the second word of that verse. It's the word thou. Thou. Now, you will be aware, perhaps, brothers and sisters and young people, that the translators of 1611 did us a service, a very good service. For the most part, it's not perfect, but it's nearly perfect. For the most part, when they used the T words, like they, thee, and thou, in the language of both Hebrew and Greek, it was in the singular. When they used the Y words, ye, you, your... It was almost always in the plural. Now, I can give you many cases where I can show you that that, that works. You recall the time in Luke 22 when, when Peter and others of the disciples were saying, Lord, we will never forsake you. And he turned to his disciples. There was all 12 of them there. And he says, Satan hath desired to sift you. That's what it says in the King James, quite correct. Satan hath desired to sift you as wheat. But then he turns to Peter and he looks Peter in the eyes and he says, but I have prayed for thee. They got it right. The you was plural. The thee was singular. Because it was Peter, of course, who went out and shamefully repudiated his Lord. You see the point of that? So what I, the point I'm making is this. This is a personal message for Ezekiel. But Ezekiel is a representative man. He's there to represent you and me. So you've got a problem with sacrifice, you'd better read this carefully. I know people do have a problem with sacrifice. I might have a problem with sacrifice as a mortal, but I don't think I'll have too much problem as an immortal. I don't have the same feelings and sensitivities perhaps as you might have now. I faint at the sight of blood, so that's not a good thing. Now, follow me. This is well worth highlighting in your Bible. Verse 19, the second word, is thou. Verse 20, the second word is thou. At the end of verse 20, and thou shalt cleanse and purge it. Verse 21 begins with the word thou. Verse 22, in the second line, on the second day, thou shalt offer a kid. Verse 23, and thou hast made an end of cleansing, thou shalt offer a young bullock. Verse 24, and thou shalt offer them before Yahweh. Verse 25, seven days shalt thou prepare every day a goat for an offering. Get the point? Ezekiel would not have missed it. He knew he would have a priestly role in the kingdom. He would be a king priest. And he's there to represent you And me, which is why chapter 46 is so important. So come to chapter 46, verse 1. I want you to notice how it begins. Thus saith Adonai Yahweh. So what does that title mean? We know what it means. He who will become rulers. And that's why... This is a reference to Christ and some of his saints going to worship on particular days. He will have selected them because they will have been there at that time. They will have shared with him a meal in the east court of that house. In a moment we'll point that out. And he will have selected certain of his saints to be his priests for that particular day. So what days are they? Well, let's read. It says in verse 1 of chapter 46, Thus saith Adonai Yahweh, the gate of the inner court that looketh toward the east. Stop, let's get this right. What are we talking about here? The gate of the inner court. I'm going to put an arrow there pointing to it. The inner court begins, as you know, it begins. You see that little, these dotted lines here? That's the porch. The inner court begins on the outer wall of the inner row of Sele. So you see the dotted lines up here? That's the beginning of the inner court. So when we read in that verse, the gate of the inner court that looketh toward the east, it's talking about the entrance from this place, as you cross over 100 cubits to the circular sanctuary, this area here, right, it's talking about the area being shut off by a gate. There's a door. And that door is shut for certain periods. See what it says here? It shall be shut for six working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be opened. And in the day of the new moon it shall be opened. So these are special occasions. There's the Sabbath, which of course occurs about four times a month, and there's the new moon, which occurs twelve times a year. So they're the days that we're talking about. Verse 2. And the prince shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate. So, hang on, let's get this right. The way of the porch of that gate. See these dotted lines here along that, the outer wall of the inner royal cello? You've got that? Now I know it's complicated, but if you focus, you'll get it. See that? those dotted lines? That's the porch. So what happens in that porch? Well, let's read on. It says, The prince shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate without... So he's on the outside for the time being... And shall stand by the post of the gate and the priests, read the selected immortal priests, the saints, for that day, the priest shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings. So Christ will continue to make sacrifice throughout the kingdom age to remind everyone that even he is there because of his own work. He was able to overcome, and he was raised from the dead because of perfect obedience. Had he not been perfectly obedient, he wouldn't be there, and neither would you or I. So he's going to remind everyone. That's why he keeps the wounds in his hands and feet and side, to show everyone that he is there because of his own work, his sacrifice, which he made for all men. He's a beneficiary of his own work he's going to continue to make sacrifice. And the day will come, brothers and sisters, when you and I will be invited sometime in that thousand years. There's a lot of us, if we're going to be there, there's going to be a lot of us. He's going to look at you across the table and say, it's your day. It's a bit like Zacharias, very old man. That his day came. The day came when he would go in to offer incense. And the day will come when we will do our part as Christ's priests on this occasion. On a Sabbath or a new moon? Let's read on here. Because what we read is this. And he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. So the threshold of the gate is exactly where you see that red arrow pointing. So we've got to go 50 cubits in now from the from the porch, because the porch is where the sacrifices are prepared, just like it is on the north side. There's tables there, there's a preparation of a the sacrifice. Then they're carried 50 cubits... Inwards, and he stands there at that point, at the threshold of the gate. And because it's a Sabbath or a new moon, that gate's been opened for the day. What else happens here? goes on to say, it says, then he shall go forth, and we'll talk about what that means in a minute, but the gate shall not be shut until the evening. Likewise, notice this, the people of the land shall worship at the door of this gate, before Yahweh in the Sabbaths and in the new moons. What that means is that the people, the mortal people, who have come in either by the north or by the south on that day, can gather in the separate place. That's what it's called, the separate place here. They gather in here at the particular gate where Christ is standing. Now, you've just got to sort of think about that. Because if you're one of these priests, you're there, and you're looking out, and you see this vast multitude of mortal people standing there in awe. Of what's happening here this day. And they see you carrying the sacrifices of Christ. And he's going to cross over with you through those people up into the circular sanctuary, and you're going to present them to another immortal saint at that inner gate, you know, the six cubit one we were talking about, who will then transport it by various means to the altar at the top of Mount Zion in preparation for the 3 pm consumption of the sacrifices. Got a picture? I mean, why is it here? Why is this detail here, do you think? If we are not impelled by that, brothers and sisters, if, if we can't be, if we can't see the need, given that that's our hope, to do something about our life today, well, I think God's wasted his time. Don't no, you reckon? That's why it's there, so that we can be compelled To pick up and to press towards the mark of the prize of our high calling in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, when you look at it like that. And what does it mean when it says he goes forth in verse 2? And then shall he go forth. Now when you read that phrase, you might think, well, that means he's going to sort of turn on his heels, go back across the hundred cubits to the outer row of buildings, open up the shut east gate... And leave. No, it doesn't mean... Because that gate won't be open. It doesn't mean that. It means that he goes inward. He's going into the circular sanctuary. He's going in there to spend time with the immortals who will sing the praises of Yahweh in that building. He's going in there to watch the consumption of the sacrifices. And then he's going to come back. And when he comes back, that gate is shut in the evening. As it says at the end of verse 2. So that, brothers and sisters, is a wonderful picture indeed. And I want you to try and conjure up in your mind a picture of you being there. And here's your artist's impression. We're all, I think, familiar with that particular imagery. You see all these people here in that court. Well, I'm going to make out for the time being that they're saints who have shared a meal in that right-hand side, eastern row of Selea, and they're now out they're watching Christ and, his, and the saint, saints who are his priests for that day, preparing his sacrifices. They're watching all of that. And then they will watch, of course, as he leaves and crosses over to uh, the circular sanctuary. So he will have come out of that building there on the right, the east gate. He will have crossed over and done the things we've talked about. So when you take another elevation of that, and what we're doing here, of course, is we're looking at the two rows of cello. Here's your east across to the right. This is the way to the left to Mount Zion. Okay, you've got the picture. And what we have here is, of course, what the prince does while he's in this house. He resides here in this row of buildings on the east. These gates, remember, when he entered with the saints, are shut permanently for the next thousand years. He sacrifices with his priests over here under the porch of the inner row. And then he worships here by the post of the gate at the threshold and then he goes forth. He crosses over the hundred cubits or so to the circular sanctuary. I want you to have a look with me at Luke chapter 12. Verse 35. A need for preparation, because that day is coming. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. And ye yourselves like men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord when he cometh shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself, And make them to sit down to meat or food and will come forth and serve them. Really? Have you ever imagined that, brothers and sisters? That you are there on that particular day in these eastern courts, over in this building here, all right, you're there, there's three levels, and Christ is going to come around at some point and he's going to serve you. Really? This is the king of kings and lord of lords. But you know what he said, didn't you? He said, he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And there's a lesson in that, isn't there? He that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And he will continue to serve. That is a wonderful picture. And it's all going to happen, brothers and sisters, in that building there. That's why it's so important to have the picture. That's why it's so important to walk around this house with Ezekiel. And I would commend to you some work, some preparation in terms of study on Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48 in fact, but particularly chapters 40 to 44. So brothers and sisters, that's the prospect before us. Now I want to conclude by taking you to Psalm 116. You'll see there on the the screen, under the arch above the gate, where the prince worships and the people gather here to watch the prince worshipping. You'll see the quotation from Ezekiel 46 in verse 2. And he shall worship at the threshold of the gate, then he shall go forth through those people. Psalm 116 is about that. Amongst other things, it's about that. It's the psalm of thanksgiving for deliverance from death, which is what, of course, he's doing on this occasion on the Sabbath and the new moon. He's making his own sacrifices. He's reminding everyone that he himself went through this process. He was the sacrifice, and he was raised up out of the dead, which is what the early verses of Psalm 116 are all about. But look at verse 9. He's been raised... He's been glorified, and so in verse nine he says, and this, of course, is a messianic psalm. We know that it's quoted in Second of Corinthians chapter four and verse thirteen by Paul in relation to Christ's sacrifice. So we know it's a messianic psalm. He says in verse nine, "I will walk, pane, in the face of Yahweh, in the lands (plural word in the Hebrew), in the lands of the living." And what he means by the lands of the living is in the company of immortal people. That's what he means. He said in verse 10, I believe, therefore have I spoken. I was greatly afflicted. And he talks about his afflictions. Then look at verses 12 to 15. What shall I render unto Yahweh for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation, that's what Luke 22 is about, I will not drink henceforth of the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of Yahweh. Now, where's he going to do this? Verse 14. I will pay my vows unto Yahweh. Now, we need to pause there because, you see, we would have said that he's already paid his vows. Hadn't he? No. No. He will not be content, brothers and sisters, until sin and death have been absolutely eradicated from the earth. He still has some pain to do. I will pay my vows. Now, where's he going to do that? Verse 14. I will pay my vows unto Yahweh now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his saints. Now that sounds like that your death and my death is precious. Well, there's a sense in which our deaths are precious because we put in what's called memorial grace. But that's not what that verse is about. It should be rendered, as other literal translations, like Young's and Rotherham, precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death for his saints. It's about the death of Christ. It's precious to Yahweh. Okay? You and I die. It's incidental. We're like grass of the earth. But that death was particularly important. And that's what's being celebrated here on the days that Christ makes his own sacrifices. But go down a bit further to verses 17 to 19 of this psalm. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving, the most important sacrifice you can make, by the way, and will call upon the name of Yahweh, I will pay my vows unto Yahweh now in the presence of all his people. So we're back with what we read in verse 14. But then we've got a very important verse. Where? Where, Lord? Where will this happen? In the courts of Yahweh's house. In the midst of thee, O Jerusalem. Praise ye, Yahweh. Yeah, just like we've been saying in Ezekiel 46. Our Lord said in the Apocalypse, brothers and sisters, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. What a day that will be.